it's pretty much like I don't think it could go higher. The, the thermometer would explode. I think it's big. It's it's pretty powerful. Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast. You just heard Magalie Rochette on the state of CX fever, and that was following her win at the Pan Am Cyclocross Championships in Midland, Ontario. We're going to have more from Midland uh, in this episode, but first, hello, Dan. How are you doing? Hello, Matthew. The people, the people want to know, they have one question for you. What was that? Did you kiss the goose? I did not kiss the goose. The goose kissing is for people on the podium. And there were there were many smooches to be had. Um, but None then, from you, though. Th- that would be presumptuous of me. That'd be like me putting on the jersey or something. You don't. You, you got to earn that goose smooch. Um, but there were some. Actually, oddly enough, there were some winners, Pan Am champions, who didn't kiss the goose. <gasps> I know. How dare they? That's like not getting a tattoo at single speed worlds or something yeah no sleeves at single speed worlds no olympic tattoo after going to the olympics yeah not kissing the stanley cup it's up there it's up there um also in this episode we have an interview with ted glenn he's a toronto uh, professor and writer and his recent book is called riding into battle and it chronicles canadian bicycle soldiers bicycle based soldiers during the first world war do we think they were picky about their group sets yeah, that's right. They were all like... <laughs> it's like, mm, this is six-speed. I, I like 105. It's durable, but it'd be nice to have Altegra. Uh, Probably no, not. We have no record of that. And finally, we're going to go back to Milton, Ontario. Uh, just a few weeks ago, there was the World Cup of track cycling. Yeah, that was, uh, was my first time at the Milton World Cup. Um, or seeing any track cycling, and that is super impressive. Mm-hmm. They not only go crazy fast, but I saw the sprinters go crazy slow as they do the cat and mouse game during the match sprints. Yeah, and we're actually not going to hear from any of those sprinters, but we have an interesting interview track side. All right, on with the show. While there was lots of professional cyclocross action at the Pan Am Cyclocross Championships in Midland, Ontario, there were also amateur riders out. There were master's categories on both days of racing. One of those master's riders is Adam Killick, producer of this podcast. He met up with Michael Vandenham, a Canadian professional who got the silver medal in the elite men's race. And Michael shared some tips with Adam. Uh, Adam, set the scene for us and your meeting with Michael Vandenham. So yeah, so we, uh, the course uh, came through this long muddy section and then dropped down onto the beach of Little Lake and there were two sand sections uh, each lap and the first one you kind of came down off the grass onto like a gentle turn onto the beach and rode along it for about 25 meters but then there was a really tricky hard 90 degree left turn off the sand and back up onto the grass and that was really deeply rutted and tricky and so I asked uh, Michael if he could give me a few tips uh, on how to uh, not uh, end up on the ground and 
sort of unfortunately for you, these tips came after your two races uh, of the weekend. That's true. It would have been helpful to have that on Saturday morning and not uh, Sunday after my race, but I'll take what I can get and, you know, I'll be there next year. There you go. And these will serve you in your other races this year. So we'll hear about those tips and that advice live from uh, the Silver Goose Pan Am Championships. And as you're listening, you will hear uh, a drum ceremony in the background. Uh, This drum ceremony opened the elite races on both days. And it's very appropriate because in Little Lake Park, the site of the races, uh, is also a Huron-Wendat village and ossuary. So let's hear from Michael Vandenham and Adam Killick. Okay, so let's, uh, we can start here. Maybe let's just start on the hard pack. Sure. And we can talk about coming through this one here. All right. So a big, big part of what you're looking for in sand riding is not to get caught up in looking at the rut itself, but instead yeah. looking forward past the rut. Yeah, I and I do that. I kind of look at the rut and then, and then I'm just kind of too clenched. Exactly. You start looking down at it, um, or even worse, you start thinking about not riding the rut, and it turns out as soon as you start looking anywhere else but Got that. It. So yeah, you want to look down the rut, past the rut, and then when you're going out the corner, you want to be looking at the exit. Another thing is people often try to fight sand ruts. What we're really looking for is trust the rut that it's going to hold you, especially as they get deeper like this. Um, body weight a little bit back and let the bike go where it wants to go. Don't fight it because that's where you're going to end up out of the uh, out of that rut and where you're trying to go. Yeah, yeah I found that because I was like either going over the rut and then really trying to have to force the bike back, throw the bike back into the course or just putting the foot down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So looking where you want to go, relaxing a little bit out there and uh, just letting the rut take you where it's going. Don't don't fight it. So we ready to Try to ride it here and uh sure. You wanna go first? Absolutely. Okay. Alright. Oh man down. Alright, so how many people can I take out in one cry? Some something didn't work there. What uh what happened? I think it went over the bars. Oh. Dug your front so wheel in a little bit. The, I came out of the rut this way. Yeah. I think I tried to force it back. So yeah, so don't force it. Keep. You're not steering with a rut. Another thing I didn't mention is you're not steering with your front. You're steering with the back tire as much. The rut will take the front wheel around. Weight wants to be a little bit further back. Okay. All right. Should we try it again? Yeah. Okay. One more time. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Weight back a bit more. Exactly. And it's like I actually dabbed coming out of that one. It's totally fine. I mean, it's going to cost you a split second, but still you're committing to that rut, letting it take you around. And then you can get on the gas right away when it's done, but keeping that weight back and kind of relaxing the upper body. You can react so much more to what's going on out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Perfect. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Michael Vandenham is an elite cyclocross racer on Garneau Easton, presented by Transitions Life Care. Adam Killick is the producer of this podcast and a master's racer, diving, sometimes literally, into his first year of cyclocross. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. When you think of that war, the technology that often comes to mind is bayonets, exploding artillery shells, 
mustard gas, uh, maybe even some of the first tanks ever used in battle, and even biplanes. But one piece of technology that was there is the bicycle. It sounds a bit weird, for especially for a war that didn't see a lot of movement, saw soldiers in muddy trenches, but the bicycle was there. And a Toronto professor and writer, Ted Glenn, investigated the bicycle's role in this war, and he looked into the soldiers, especially the Canadian ones, and the role they played in the First World War. In Glenn's newly released book, Riding Into Battle, he chronicles the role that the Canadian soldiers played, and especially the combat cyclists, in the First World War. Ted, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I do appreciate being here. Uh, what led you to write this book? Uh, there's a couple. I think there's a personal component, and I think there's, a, I guess, more of a, a research component. Uh, the personal component is I work at uh, Lakeshore Campus. And I live at uh, roughly St. Clair and Dufferin. And I've been biking to work for 16 years. And part of my bike route is uh, down the, uh, the Humber River Valley. And uh, so, so when I happened on this, this story of the cyclists, I was, I was doing some research on another project about Toronto in the immediate uh, Great War era. And um, there was this, this, this clipping I saw of cyclists. I'm like, the what? <laughs> right? Bikes. First World War, trenches. I didn't expect it. So uh, all of a sudden, it's like, okay. So then when I started doing some more work and research and trying to understand uh, who they are, what they did, uh, I understood that the roughly 1,100 cyclists did all of their training here in Toronto. And they were based at uh, Camp Exhibition, what we now affectionately know as the, um, uh, well, it used to be the government building, but is now Medieval Times. And they did a lot of training up and down the, the Humber Valley. And they did something called the Battle of the Humber. So working for Humber College and having cycling and all that terrain, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, this, this, this is a really cool story because I, I see it. I, I know what that's like. So that area where we now see you know, parks and, and bike paths or multi-use trails, that was uh, a place for um, soon-to-be soldiers, soon-to-be men going to the front to uh, train? These, these battles of the Humber were, some of them were six, 7,000 troops. So those based at Camp Exhibition, others out in the east and west ends of the, of the city, and they would do these day-long uh, um, mock training exercises in the Humber. Elsewhere as well in Toronto, but that was, that was one of the key places. Interesting. So, bicycles and combat. They're, I think you sort of alluded to your, like, <laughs> wait a second moment. Um, when did the bicycle enter combat? Well, actually, you know, if, if the, the history of bikes in combat actually go back to the Prussian War in the 1860s. They, they were, you know, started to be used as, as messengers back then, but then they really got used in the Boer War. Mm. Uh, they were, they were um, a, a real common way of, of troops on all sides uh, as, uh, as scouts, as messengers. Uh, in, in the Great War, the cyclists, though, really came to the fore in the last 100 days. So the last 100 days, starting in, in August, going to November 1918, that's when they really came into their own. They came into their own because for most of the war, it was a trench war. And the cyclists didn't really do much. They, you know, they, at Vimy, there's these great quotes of these, these poor guys who, you know, bikes having been um, parked way, way back, uh, just acting as tunnelers and just uh you know one guy says you know i think our, our job there was to carry out half the ridge in, in buckets you know so they weren't they weren't biking um but when the hundred days came and the battle of amiens on august 8th started it uh they pushed the allies in general pushed the uh german troops blasted them up out of the trenches and had them on the run going back towards belgium 
And when they had them on the run, the cyclist job, uh, along with uh, this, this um, group called uh, Brutonelle's Brigade, and there was the uh, Canadian Motor Machine Gun Brigade, there was uh, Canadian Light Cavalry, so a horse troop, uh, there was motorcycles, there was the bikes, there was um, some motor trench lorries, uh, and these guys, their job was to stay out way ahead of the, the main army and keep the Germans on the run. They had to what was called keep in touch so that they wouldn't retrench. So at times, the cyclists and, and their compatriots were out a day, two days ahead of the main army. Uh, trying to push the Germans back and make sure that they didn't have time to retrench. So the cyclists were like the speediest guys on the battlefield. As long as they were, as long as the roads were okay. <laughs> as long as the roads were bombed out. Well, so the Germans got, uh, you know, they they got uh, they got tricky in those last hundred days. Uh, in the first little while, the Canadians made some great advances, but as they started going back and they realized that the roads and the cavalry off in the fields and stuff um, were reporting back to the Canadian Corps in their positions. Because uh, that, that was one of their jobs, report back on German positions. They started bombing the roads, so <laughs> it slowed them down. So this this group, this uh, Brutonelle's Brigade, they actually they were an independent force, and they actually had their own engineering section. Mm. And these guys would go out, and the cyclists and everybody else, they they patch the roads, fix the the mine holes and stuff, and then they they'd be off. Mm. But uh, yeah, they were uh, they were quite a quite a crew. So tell me who's. Who gave the, the brigade that name? Or who's the, the name? name uh, a guy by the name of uh, Raymond Brutonel. Mm-hmm. And he was a Frenchman, came to Canada uh, to make his fortune at the end of the 19th century. And it was him that, uh, and uh, Charles Sifton, who actually had this idea for motorized uh, warfare. And so they went out and they bought 20 uh, motorized armored vehicles. Uh, one of them is in the Canadian War Museum. Uh, and because of his real ad, um, advanced thinking on the subject of mobile warfare, um, combined arms, uh, he was given this brigade. And they, they really are the, um, uh, a harbinger of a lot of what happens in the Second World War. Mm, the, sort the, of the bikes were part of it. Interesting. When you think of the First World War, you think of trenches. You don't think a lot of uh, of a lot of motion or movement. You do yeah. associate that maybe with the, the Second World War. Um, so, what help me position those cyclists in this war of of, of trenches and, and and sitting in muck? Like, how are those bikes? Uh, being used to that. <laughs> basically as you said in Vimy, right? Yeah, I mean, so so what ended up what ended up happening uh, a lot of the time is is the cyclists did other duties as assigned. Ah, right. They were they would do patrol. They would uh, guard prisoners. Um, they would use their bikes to run messages from the trenches back to headquarters, uh, and so they were, they were basically just minding their time. Uh, they, but but really, you know, that that last hundred days, as, as Jack Granstein uh, has has put, I mean, that was Canada's greatest victory. Vimy was was good, but from a strategic point of view, it didn't accomplish much on the front. Mm. It was the 100 days, though, that really put Canada on the map as this, this really incredible, efficient fighting force. Mm. And the cyclist's contribution to it was that it was mobile. Interesting. And so this is maybe the first look at modern mobile warfare. Certainly. Interesting. Tell me about the bikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so there's a couple of different bikes that are that are used. So when when they start out in Canada, they're on they're on bikes that are called plants, mm-hmm. and they're made in a in a shop on Queen East, mm-hmm. and eventually uh, CCM buys them out. Right. But the president of the company, uh, Tommy Richardson, I think is his name. Uh, he um, he ends up 
getting this great sweet deal to sell bikes to the Canadian government, right? And so he ends up selling us about 1,200 bikes, 1,200 planets. Mm -hmm. So most of the the training that's done in Canada after the the first division ships out, they're they're done on planets and around town. And it's a 24-inch frame. They've got coaster hubs, uh, mud flaps. They've got, um, you know, pannier rigging on the back and Mm -hmm. the front. But they've also got clips for Hotchkiss uh, 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 303 machine gun to mount on the handlebars. Another one to put an Enfield rifle uh, up the up the frame. Um, yeah, so they're all they're all kitted out. But by the time they get to the war, though, the the planets end up being a little bit too uh, light duty. Really? Yeah, and I mean the men like them because they're light. Mm-hmm. But then uh, what ends up happening is they go with the. Um, uh, British Small Arms Company, BSA, another 24-inch frame, but it's much sturdier, and it's the it's the the British standard that the the Aussies, the the Kiwis are riding, the Brits are riding, the Indians are riding, uh, and so that that ends up being mostly what the uh, the troops are riding in 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 the battlefield. And. Do you have a sense of what lighter and heavier meant for the for those frames? I can't figure that out. I haven't been able to find uh, that that specific information. Oh, I don't know how heavy that is. But I do know when they loaded up with kit, got their their rain ponchos and mm-hmm. their great coats and their guns. It's about ninety pounds. <laughs> that's that's like a, a whole other professional cyclist. <laughs> well, there's a very professional well, cyclist. So when they bike. first got off, when they first got off the trains uh, in in France, and in the original kit, right? What what um, you know, headquarters said you must have these guys. These guys get off the train. They've got their bikes, and one guy says they look like a like a haystack. They've got so much crap on their bikes. I mean, they figure it out by the, by by you know a few years in, they figure out what's needed, what they don't need. You know, always make sure you got a spare. You have your tire changing kits you know you have your span your basics and they can cut that weight down but but at the beginning you know it's pretty crazy when you were researching this book what maybe detail um or item really surprised you the humor i find that surprising the humor (laughs) humor? you you, i mean the uh the book uh, a large part of the book is informed by uh, uh the work of a guy named dick ellis and he was a uh, uh, Toronto fellow, uh, born and raised, uh, was the last living member of the, uh, the cyclist, died in 1996. But over the course of his life, he put together um, a number of different divisional histories. Hmm. And he also started a uh, you know, two or three uh, um, episodic um, journal, and which, which goes for almost 50 years. And the journal has all of these these cyclists writing in, telling stories. Uh, do you remember this? You know, well, guess what this was like? And they send in all this great paraphernalia of, of their time and in their diaries. And there's all this humor that's there. Hmm. And, and as one of them said at some point, he says, you know, with, w- without that sense of humor, we wouldn't have made it through. Hmm. Like there's this, this great story at Vimy uh, of one of the cyclists. Um, so Vimy is, has this... Um, you know, the fight above the ground, but then there's also the fight below with all the tunnels going on, right? And the, the idea was on both sides is, you know, dig the tunnel underneath the other guy's tunnel and blow it up. But in order to do that, you know, it took some time because it's all by hand and they had to be very quiet. So they sent one of the cyclists out to kind of guard the tunnels one night. So he's out there, um, you know, deep in the dark and he's got a candle and he's going through and the candle goes out and he goes, oh, oh, that might, that might be dangerous gas. So he goes down another tunnel and lights the candle again, has a cigarette. And it's like, dude, <laughs> you just said. This. So, he's, so he's down there. He's got this stethoscope on basically listening for uh-huh. movement. And all of a sudden he has to go to the washroom. And of course he can't go anywhere else. So he just 
let's loose there in the tunnel. Uh, and, and he's still got a stethoscope on it. And all of a sudden he thinks that one of the dams has burst and all of a sudden it's, uh, you know, he's going to get flooded out. And then he realizes, no, he's just got a stethoscope on it. So he takes this up. So anyways, uh, you find all of these kind of crazy <laughs> stories of these, these guys. And, it, and it's this, this humor. There's, a, there's another great story, uh, Second Division, when they're at uh, Chiseldon, they're at camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that time, their captain is a guy by the name of Tom Kennedy, who becomes the 15th Premier of Ontario. Mm. And he's based at Cookstown. And uh, so they're, they're out riding one day, and they come across uh, what they call a, a group of bathing beauties. And as the cyclist said, the bathing beauties uh, attire in Britain was a little different, a little more uh, progressive than it was at Canada at the time. Oh, wow. And so they had this massive crash up. <laughs> the bikes all run into each other because everybody wants to have a sea. And so they had, you know, bent wheels and uh, spent the rest of the day trying to get the bikes over it. Uh, I wonder how they explained that one. <laughs> But it's that kind of stuff, right? That, that it was just completely surprising is, is how funny these guys were. And when did uh, the bicycle take its leave from combat? When did it retire or just cease to appear? It's a good question. I don't know that. I mean, if you follow into the Second World War, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're used even more so than the First World War. You know, mm. they, they, and, but technology has evolved. So you've got, for example, the paratroopers with their folding bikes. Uh, they jump. Uh, U.S. Army had about 120,000 of them. Really? Um, there's these great stories uh, during the Vietnam War of uh, um, the um, the Viet Cong uh, on the Ho Chi Minh Trail with their bikes. Hmm. So uh, I don't know exactly, but I know they continued on for a while. I guess maybe they, they continue on. They're, they don't have an official battalion to them, but they're, they no. still find themselves in battle. Ted, thank you very much. Oh, that's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Ted Glenn is a professor at Humber College in Toronto. His recent book is Riding into Battle about the Canadian combat cyclists in the First World War. Dan, both you and I very recently were at the Mattamy National National Cycling Cycling Center. Center. Yes, thank you. Uh, In Milton, Ontario. And... Uh, there was some pretty cool action on the boards. Yeah, that was my first time seeing any real track racing. And I got to say, that is a completely different discipline than any road stuff I've seen. They go both super slow in the sprint, super fast in the sprint. And you, if you're not careful, you'll literally reach out and get knocked over by some of those sprinters on the boards. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to lean in too closely. It was the UCI uh, World Cup event. And it was a three-day event. We were there on day two. You were there a bit earlier than me. You were during the early yeah. session. So I saw some of the sprint heats, and I saw the early races of the men's Omnium. Uh, seeing that many people on the track is absolutely bonkers. Just the 40 guys coming in and out of the peloton. Um, there's like a certain like poetry to that motion where they're all on the same gearing they have no brakes so it's just a rhythm to it is really cool to watch yeah yeah and i feel like for track cycling um you really it really helps to be there and just spend spend that three hours at a morning or early session or late evening session and just soak in the vibe and soak in the racing um at the evening session it was pretty exciting because um canada got a medal in the uh women's madison and hugo barrett was pretty cool to watch in the final heat of the Kirin. Um, he launched crazy early. It looked like he could hold off Jason Kenny. 
but he got a very uh, emphatic silver. Now, that's a cool story, but I think the real hero of the Kirin, the man in front of Hugo and Jason Kenny at the start. Yes, the man who was keeping them back. Um, I spoke with the coach at the Milton Velodrome. He works with um, Canadian athletes in the Next Gen program. He works with junior riders at the provincial level, and he organizes some of the races there. But he's also a journey driver. And he has a pretty interesting story about how he kind of got further into the world of Kirin. He was in Japan. He went through the wrong door and got surrounded by what he calls goons. But it all turned out pretty good. Uh, so my name is David Jack. I'm uh, one of the coaches uh, here at the Milton Velodrome. I work with uh, sort of all level of athletes. I uh, did a bunch of work with uh, Cycling Canada this year with their next-gen riders. Uh, took them to Europe to do some track racing uh, and some road racing in Belgium. Uh, and then worked with them uh, for the Pan-American Games and uh, right up to the, to the World Cup here. I'm uh, very, very happy with uh, a lot of the work that they did. Uh, they got a lot of personal bests and, and uh, one, of the, one of our riders, uh, Evan, got a, uh, came fifth in the, in the scratch race yesterday, which is a really good result for, for a young rider. Um, so yeah, a little bit of stuff with Cycling Canada. Then I work with the uh, Ontario Cycling Association with uh, some of their uh, junior and cadet uh, high performance programs here. Uh, and then also one of the main uh, coaches with the National Cycling Institute, Milton, NCIM. Work a lot with the, the high performance youth groups, as well as some of the uh, advanced, advanced classes. Since I'm the motorbike guy, I do a lot of motor pacing with, with, with athletes on the track. Uh, and then one of the, I'm also one of the race organizers for the NCIM race nights. And what are you going to be doing here at Milton at the World Cup tonight? Uh, tonight, I'm the, I'm the Derny driver for the Karen. And how long have you been driving a, a Derny on the track? Um, Steve Bauer, when, uh, when, when Milton first, first opened, uh, Steve Bauer uh, asked me to be one of the drivers. I had a lot of uh, motorcycle experience. Um, and I actually even have experience uh, with Karen in Japan and that uh, I lived in Japan uh, late late 90s early 2000s uh, and the, my first two years there I lived near uh, uh, one of their tracks and got to train with the, their Karen riders a little bit so that was kind of fun I'm not a sprinter either so it was kind of it's kind of weird I just uh, I used to be like a semi-professional photographer and I couldn't read anything in Japanese and I ended up going through like the wrong door one day and got surrounded by goons and it turned out I went through like where the the rider's entrance was and um, because it's gambling and it was race day you're not supposed to be near the riders because that something bad might be going on right so um, got really really lucky and that one of those one of the guys uh, spoke a little bit of English I talked to him a little bit and I went back with like a translated letter saying, this is what I've done in the past with, with track racing. Can I train with you guys? And they said, sure, here's a track bike. Let's, let's ride. So I trained with them like two or three times a week for, for about two years. Kind of fun. Very, very different culture. Uh, they all make money. Even, even the lowest level riders make quite a bit of money. Um, a lot of them smoke, which is kind of weird. 
Um, in the in the the training group that I had, maybe only two of them didn't smoke because it was bizarre. A lot of them had big beer bellies and stuff. And these are athletes that people bet on. Yeah, yeah, but there's different different levels of racing. Like they have they have different tiered racing. Uh, the guys in the lowest level of racing know that they're never going to be the best, so they just it's just a regular job for them, right? Tell me about the art of driving a Derny. What what do maybe what does maybe your average uh, fan or just casual watcher of track cycling in the Kieran, what uh, should she or he know about what you're doing out there on the track? So in uh, in Japan where Kieran started, uh, it's a sport where there's gambling and it's like horse racing. And the Derny driver there actually doesn't use a motorcycle. He's actually riding a bicycle. Um, and over there... There's a in in modern Karen. There's a guy in a tower that has a a radio, and he talks to the talks to the guy that's that's doing the pacing, uh, and he tells the guy to speed up or, or where to come off because it's it's not as it's a little bit different in Japan in that they they can come off the track in different spots. Um, so the the guy in the tower is trying to make it as exciting as possible and 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 make it go. Uh, whatever way he wants it to go, he's when he's when he's watching the race. With UCI level stuff, they've um, they added the motorbike. Over the years, they've made multiple changes. I watched a video a couple couple weeks ago that I'd actually seen many times uh, of when Gord Singleton won his uh, world championship care in, and there were like nine riders on the track at that time, uh, which is which is what uh, which is what they have in, in Japan, but Japanese tracks, almost all of them are 400 meters, so a lot more room. Most of them are also outdoors. They're 400 meters so they can have them banked so that even if it's raining, they don't fall off, which is, which is weird to watch track racing in the, in, the, in the rain. Anyhow, so my job, uh, the job of the, the Derny is, one, to, to get the riders up to speed. So when I come across the line where, where, they're, where they're lined up, uh, I'm doing 30 kilometers an hour, and then I have to incrementally pick it up to 50 kilometers an hour for over three laps for when I come off. And the the UCI representative that's looking after me here, he actually times every every heat that we do to make sure that I'm on I'm on schedule, so that so nobody has any sort of advantage, and so I'm not you know pop like gassing anybody because I because I've accelerated too too quickly. The other big important thing that, that a lot of people don't understand about uh, the motorbike in, in Karim is the motorbike's actually there to keep people from attacking because you can't pass you can't pass the motorbike until the motorbike comes off with with three to go. So half half of the job is 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 you know in match sprint someone can go right from the gun. In in Karim, you have to wait till the motorbike gets out of the way. Uh, so that. If, um, with with Karen right now and on a 250 meter track being uh, six laps total, if the motorbike wasn't there, then people could could just attack right from the gun and it'd be a totally different race. So it's probably one of the least understood things that pe- people think that the motorcycle is there just to get people going like 100 kilometers an hour, but it's 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 more to keep them back than to actually get them going fast. Having having the motorbike gradually pick up speed does allow them to use bigger gears and. Um Tell me actually about the bike. Is it um, it's an electric bike? Uh, yeah, the bikes that we have here in, in Milton are, are electric. 
it's it's depend where you are in the world and 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 how old the facilities are. A bunch of the the races I was in Europe, they they're still using the the really old dirty dirty bikes like two-stroke dirty bikes where you know, it's got a huge huge gear that people are actually pedaling. At one of the tracks in Germany this summer, the the guy has to actually start on the rail on the far side and do a full full lap and a half before they can start the race for him to to get up to the right speed to to start the race. Our bikes are are electric, which are nice for the indoors compared to the to the two-stroke smoke that uh, that people get. Some of the the classic uh, Karen people don't don't like that uh, there's no noise with the electric ones because the the noise gets people you know revved up and excited. But we have music for that, so it's all good. All right, David Jack, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks. David Jack is a coach and journey driver at the Mattamy National Cycling Centre in Milton, Ontario. And that's the episode, but we still have lots more from Midland, Ontario, where we saw the Pan Am Cyclocross Championships. Uh, Of particular interest, which you should check out, is something from our web editor, Terry McCall. He usually covers uh, mountain biking, that's his main beat, but he's also a really good cyclocross racer. And where did he find himself, Dan? Yeah, so our man was uh, in the elite race, hanging on with the goal of trying to see what he could do, see how many laps he could hang with the leaders. He's got some great GoPro footage of that, so that's going up this week on cyclingmagazine.ca. Yes. The man's also got great bike checks from the pro race. Uh, we've got Magli Rochette's coming up, Stephen Hyde's up there, a couple other great pros. Check that out. For Yes, always. Double check with our website. Um, and also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at podcast at cyclingmagazine.ca. This episode was put together by Dan Walker, Philippe Tremblay, Terry McCall, and me, Matthew Piaro. It's produced by Adam Killick. And if you want to know more, check us out at Cycling Magazine on Instagram, at Cycling Magazine on Twitter, and at Cycling Mag on Facebook. Uh, Remember, like, review, subscribe, share, tell your friends, tell your mom, but only if it's five stars and only if it's something nice. Yes, please. We really do appreciate those reviews. Also, special thanks to the Ontario Media Development Corporation for its support. We'll see you next time.